Well, this morning we're going to continue our look at chapter 10 of uh, Hebrews. We introduced that uh, last week, introduced chapter 10, and it was really part one of what became a two-part look at the subject of boldness. And to introduce this idea of boldness this week, I came across a, a story in the Epic Times this week that, that uh, really caught my attention. It's a story about Admiral James Stockdale, a Medal of Honor recipient. Now, some of you may remember James Stockdale as the VP candidate on the ticket with Ross Perot back in 92. I remember it well. That's the year we got married. It was election year. And uh, he was a late addition to the ticket. Uh, they announced him just before the first vice presidential debate that, that year. And a lot of people had never even heard of him. And so he got quite a laugh when he introduced himself at the debate in his opening remarks with these self-deprecating words. Some of you will uh, remember this. Who am I? Why am I here? <laughs> but in reality, Stockdale's life is no laughing matter at all. As the story in the Epic Times explains, he served 10 years in the Vietnam War, and on September 9, 1965, his Douglas A-4 Skyhawk was shot out of the sky, forcing him to eject to save his own life. The North Vietnamese captured him that day, but little did they know then that they had taken in a very, very troublesome prisoner. They detained Stockdale at the infamous Hanoi Hilton, and Stockton, who was a natural leader, quickly earned the respect of his fellow American prisoners of war. He established a code of ethics and rules to organize the prisoners, and he boosted their morale. When the abuse of American POWs reached a climax in 1969, Stockdale was selected by his captors as a trophy for their propaganda. Well, knowing that he would be paraded in front of the cameras if he was, that he would not be paraded in front of the cameras if he was disfigured, he cut his own scalp with a razor and then he beat his own face with a wooden stool, foiling his captor's plans. After Stockdale found out that several POWs had been tortured to death, he slit his own wrists to show that he would rather die than capitulate to his captors. Well, from that night on, the practice of torturing American POWs stopped in that facility. Stockdale finally returned home to the United States in 1973 after seven and a half years in a prison camp. In 1976, he was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroism. And in an interview, he was once asked how he persevered while in Vietnam. I never lost faith in the end of the story, replied Stockdale. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. Well, he was then asked by the interviewer about the kinds of soldiers who didn't make it out of the Hanoi Hilton alive. The optimists came the response. And then he went on to explain. They were the ones who said, we're going to get out by Christmas. And Christmas would come and Christmas would go. And then they'd say, we're going to get out by Easter. 
Easter would come and Easter would go. And then Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart, Stockdale said. Then after a reflective pause, he finished his thought with this profound statement. He said, quote, This is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that might be. Boldness. That's what he's talking about. And the writer of Hebrews touches on both of those key concepts that Stockdale mentions. Faith and boldness. He's talked a lot so far in our ten, nine and a half chapters that we've studied about holding firm to the faith. Not abandoning the faith. Keep trusting God in good times and bad. God is faithful. Trust the Lord. But he's also now talking about boldness. And he challenges his readers throughout the epistle to have an unshakable faith in God. And that requires courage. Courage. Next week, we're going to get into the last part of chapter 10, which is one of those very strong warning passages. And it's often misinterpreted and misunderstood. But hopefully by now, we've kind of seen the flow of thought and the context and we understand exactly who the writer is speaking to and what he's talking about. So I encourage you to be sure and be here next week for the final part of chapter 10. But boldness is a, a real key theme along with faith in this letter. In fact, the key verse that I mentioned last week, which we're going to get to in the section of chapter 10 that we're looking at this morning, is verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned boldness. It was mentioned back in chapter 4 when he says, Therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace. As I pointed out last week, the word boldness is the Greek word parousia. And it just means, just like it does in English, boldness, courage, frankness, outspokenness. And last week, we looked at three indications of fear from the first ten verses of chapter 10. And I pointed out that, as he so often does, the writer begins this section by once again pointing out the weakness and the limitation of the old Jewish system that his readers were contemplating running to for refuge. And we mentioned that there are three things that indicate you're operating out of fear instead of boldness. One of them is a desire to retreat to your comfort zone. We talked about consensus. When your goal is to seek consensus, uh, that's an indication of fear, not boldness. And then conformity. We talked about how that is also shows a lack of courage. But this morning I want us to pick up with verse 11 and I want to point out five reasons for boldness. Five reasons for boldness. I'll start with this quote by the famous C.S. Lewis. He said, Courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point. In other words, no matter what your gifts, no matter what your virtues, your strengths, we all are going to face times when we need boldness. We need resolve. And I think that is what the writer is getting at here in chapter 10. So turn with me to chapter 10. I want to pick up 
in verse 11 as we look at five reasons for boldness. And the first reason is this, the permanence of Christ. The permanence of Christ. Now, that might not resonate with you, with us in our current culture when we first hear it, but I can guarantee you it certainly would have resonated with the original readers. And you'll see why in just a moment when we talk about permanence. Verse 11 says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which, he says, can never take away sins. So the writer stresses the finality and the permanence of Christ's offering to a group of people who were used to having to do the same thing again and again, to go through the same motions again and again. It had become very ritualistic. I mean, think back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount with uh, addressing the, the first century Pharisees and scribes and Jewish leaders. And they were all uh, very good at dotting their I's and crossing their T's. They would pray loud prayers, have the large phylacteries, wear the proper clothing. They made sure that they stood out with the rituals of the day associated with the Old Covenant. And what does Jesus say? None of that matters. Because what the Father demands is perfection, Matthew 5, 48. And no matter how many I's you dot and T's you cross, you've still got a heart problem. The heart of the matter is a heart matter, right? It's not what you do that matters, it's what's in your heart, is what he's trying to explain to them. So that, you know, you might think you've never murdered, but if you've hated, you're guilty. You may think you've never committed adultery, but if you've lusted, you're guilty. And he goes on and lists several things. Well, here we are some, you know, 30 years later, uh, the church has already been established. Jesus has already died and risen again. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And these are Jewish people who had been saved. They had trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as their only hope for salvation. And yet, in a time of trouble, they were considering fleeing back to this old Judaistic system. And so the writer here is going to point out that unlike the priests from the old system who performed their sacrifices daily and repeatedly, Jesus offered a once-for-all sacrifice. The Jesus that had saved them, the Jesus that was the object of their faith when they trusted Him and Him alone for eternal life, was the same Jesus who accomplished it all permanently. He goes on to say in verses 12 and 13, But this man, Jesus, after He had offered one sacrifice of sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. See, the Jewish system more resembled like the mother of a toddler, right? Moms, they never sit down. They're always on the go. They've got to constantly be watching, constantly doing things. Jesus sat down beside his father. Why? Because he had finished his work. He was done. There's no more need for sacrifice. He goes on to point out that he's sitting at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. He's waiting the final destruction of Satan, the Antichrist, and all of the enemy world systems that Satan is using to try to take over the world. We've been talking about that in our What Lies Ahead series on Sundays. He says, For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected forever. Notice the permanence here. In contrast to daily and regularly, we've got forever. 
one sacrifice of sins forever, and he perfected forever, verse 14 here. Believers, those who've been, who are being sanctified. So at the moment of faith, you, by trusting in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, you in that instant are justified, declared righteous, born again, perfected positionally before the Father. But then we're also being sanctified, which is as we grow in Christ and stand firm in the faith and exercise our faith, we become more and more set apart and Christ-like, right? So this Jesus, through the offering that he made, accomplished our once-for-all perfection positionally, even though practically, as long as we're topside this earth, we may not always be perfect in practicality's sake, but we are being sanctified, and one day we will ultimately be glorified when this mortal puts on immortality. See, the ministry of Christ is a permanent, once-for-all ministry. And that's why Jesus said from the cross, if you remember, John records this, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. The permanence of Christ. So the first reason for boldness is that we have a permanent advocate on duty. He's always available, always there with us. He's accomplished the task. We never have to worry, is he going to be late for the job? Did he forget that it was time for the next daily sacrifice? Did he forget to do the next temple duty or something? No, he's done it all. It's permanent and he's there. Now, the, uh, there's a, an event in history called the Diet of Worms. Uh, some of you may be familiar with this. Now, for Jamin and Jeffrey, I just want you guys to know the diet of worms has nothing to do with eating worms, although I'm sure they probably do have a lot of protein, and maybe in a given instance, if nothing else is available, it might not be a bad idea. Have you ever eaten worms? No, I eat grasshoppers. Oh, grasshoppers, much better, yeah, much better. They're definitely tastier. Um, <laughs> what's that? Yeah, that's right. That's good, good shoes to, to follow in. By the way, and I'm really digressing now, but this reminds <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, this reminds me of another, uh, of another story about the... Uh, <laughs> we got lambs and worms. No, so the, uh, the preacher who gathered the young people together, and uh, he wanted to make a point about the dangers of alcohol. So he sat out three glasses, a glass of beer, a glass of whiskey, and a glass of tequila. And he got three worms, and he put a worm in each one of those glasses. And before long, the worms were dead. And so he said to the young people, now what does that tell you? And one uh, observant and astute young man, probably like Jeffrey or Jamin, said, well, pastor, tells me that if you drink alcohol, you'll never get worms. So anyway, <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think they missed the point in, entirely. That's not what we're talking about. The Diet of Worms was uh, a, an assembly, that's what the word diet means, that was called by the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V. It was held in the city of Worms in 1521. So the Diet of Worms, the, the assembly that was held in the city of Worms. Well, Martin Luther was summoned to this assembly, this diet, if you will, by Pope Leo X. And he was called upon to renounce his views and reaffirm uh, the church, the Catholic church. 
Well, at the end of the assembly, the, issue, the emperor issued an edict of Worms, or an edict that emanated from this city of Worms, which condemned Luther as a notorious heretic. And it banned people from promoting his theology. When, so that was what that Diet of Worms was all about. Well, when Luther was summoned to that assembly, a lot of his friends tried to dissuade him from going because they knew that it might not end well and they didn't trust the emperor. And listen to what Luther said. Quote, I am determined to enter the city in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though as many devils should oppose me as there are tiles upon the houses at Worms. When he arrived in the city of Worms, he stepped out of the carriage and with a great multitude of people gathered around, he said, God shall be on my side. Now that's boldness. Boldness means recognizing that we have a permanent Savior who provided a permanent sacrifice so that He can be our permanent advocate and provide permanent assurance. And He's with us wherever we go. But there's a second reason for boldness, and that is in verses 15 to 18, and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit. Now this was something, unlike the daily sacrifices and all of that, that the original readers were far less familiar with than we should be 2,000 years later. And yet, the indwelling Holy Spirit is one of the most neglected resources of the Christian life. You just don't hear a lot of people talking about it. But the writer wants his readers to know, and us by extension, that the presence of the Holy Spirit is a real motivation for boldness. Listen to what he says in verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, and then he goes on to quote in the next uh, verses 16 and following from Jeremiah the prophet, and he quotes the new covenant passages, which we've already uh, talked about. But what he's saying is the Holy Spirit testified through the prophet Jeremiah about a new relationship with the Father that was coming one day. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah 31, I think it's verse 31. It's a relationship that involves a new intimacy with God, a new closeness uninhibited by man-made rituals and systems. And the writer points out here in these verses that the Holy Spirit continues to testify about this reality to us today in the church age. Remember, the church age is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of things to come. The church age, according to the Apostle Paul, was a mystery unrevealed in the Old Testament. And it's also a time that is characterized by blindness for Israel and a time that is characterized by trying to get Israel's attention so that the nation of Israel, the next time when Christ comes back, will think back on the intimacy and the special relationship that the body of Christ, the church, has had with God the Father through Christ and His sacrifice. And they will say, you know, we want that intimacy. And so, really, the church is just a foreshadowing of things to come. And Paul describes the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives in Romans 8, among many other places. But Romans 8 is rich with reminders about the Holy Spirit. He says, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption. Notice the capital S, the Holy Spirit, by which we cry out, 
Abba, Father. He goes on to say, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. See, one of the unique things that we have in this present age is the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Jews did not have that. Now, the Holy Spirit is God. He's eternal. It's not like he came into existence in the church age, but he took on a new ministry in the church age, which is the permanent indwelling. No longer do believers in this present age have to pray like David did in Psalm 51, take not thy Holy Spirit from me, because it's not possible. He is with us until the day of redemption. He is the seal on our lives. He is permanent. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, I will give you the Holy Spirit and he shall abide with you forever. And that should embolden us. Because if you are, if your source of strength is in some type of statue or icon or ritual or sacrament or picture or candle, like so many rituals are in ritualistic churches today, and you're locked away in a dungeon like Admiral Stockdale was, what are you going to do? But our source of strength comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit who is with us forever. And he bears witness that we're a child of God. And as a child of God, we've got a Father who is all-powerful and all-knowing. And nothing can defeat him. Later on in the same chapter, Paul says, The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we don't know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us. You ever been in a situation where you're so burdened, so distracted by the anxieties of life, you don't even know where to begin to pray? Isn't it great to know that our Holy Spirit in those moments is praying for us? Amen. So Jesus, going back to the upper room, uh, referred to the Holy Spirit as the Comforter. I'm shifting to the King James here because that's the way I memorize this verse. And the New King James translate this word parakletos that's highlighted there in red as helper. But it's actually comforter is the idea. He says, I will pray the Father and he shall send another comforter that he may abide with you forever. And as I was thinking about the comfort of the Holy Spirit and how that engenders boldness when we find ourselves in need of it, I remembered the story from 2003 of a man by the name of Terry Dreyer. And on January 10th, 2003, he was rescued after being in the water for 20 hours when his boat capsized. He later confessed that he felt sure he was going to die. But after what seemed like an eternity, a helicopter spotted him in the water and sent word to a nearby ship that was on its way to the Persian Gulf, a United States Warship, and the name of that ship, the USS Comforter. And it was on its way to do battle, but it stopped to rescue just one man. If you ever feel like you're treading water and, and you don't know how much longer you can hang in there, just remember the Comforter is nearby, the Holy Spirit. He's right there with you. He knows exactly when and exactly how to deliver us. And that's why we can be bold when we need to be bold in the face of adversity. So we've seen the permanence of Jesus Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and then he refers once again to the power of the blood. We've looked at the blood a lot. Looked at it last week and a few weeks ago we had an entire message, By His Blood was the title of that message. But the writer keeps coming back to this notion 
as one of several key themes that would resonate with a Jewish culture that was surrounded by blood due to the sacrificial system. I mean, think about it. Have you ever stopped to think about how pervasive and, and prevalent blood was in the Jewish sacrificial system? These people saw it every day in some fashion or another. That's why he emphasizes the once-for-all sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and the shed blood of Christ. And it's the power of the blood that gives us boldness. Notice what he says. Therefore, brethren, having boldness, this was our key verse that we've looked at already, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, having a high priest over the house of God. So the therefore that starts this sentence, and it's a very long sentence that goes continues on, sort of serves as a summary of everything that he's been saying in the context. In other words, in light of all this, we should have boldness to approach God in times of stress, in times of trouble. We can have confidence to enter God's presence because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Namely, he shed his blood for us. Never underestimate the power of the blood. Now, Again, this is one of those that they would understand the motivation of that. We've sort of lost its significance. But let me remind you, the blood is not, is not symbolic. It is not metaphorical. It is not just something we sing about or preach about. Jesus literally shed his blood. It was red like our blood. It was liquid like our blood. It flowed down his face and his arms and his body. It was messy and tragic. And unlike our blood... It was pure, untainted by sin. When we really stop and think about His blood, it motivates us to be bold for a lot of reasons. It reminds me of what Paul said going back to Romans 8 once again, when he said, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If you're sitting in a captor's jail cell, or you're facing whatever enemy you want to put in that blank, you can say, you know what? My God and my Savior have gone to the extreme already. This is nothing for them. The power of the blood. The blood is powerful because it sets an example for us. And, you know, I can't get through a single message through this series in Hebrews without mentioning Hebrews 12. And we're, we're going to get there eventually. And when we do, I'll probably spend six hours on Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 because it's such a key, a key verse. But it, 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 the writer is building up to that moment where he reminds us that the blood of Christ and Christ's sacrifice set the example. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a, great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside the weight and sin that so easily besets us and run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, where he shed his blood, despising its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
But not only is the blood powerful because it sets an example for us, the blood is powerful because it shows us how much Jesus loves us unconditionally. And unconditional love, secure love, engenders boldness, doesn't it? When you're not sure whether someone loves you, you're sheepish, you're uncertain, you're doubting. But when we have assurance, we, we can be bold because we know he'll never leave us. And the blood is powerful because it reminds us how valuable we are to God. That's what redemption is all about. We talked about redemption in our Wednesday night study. But we are bought with a price. You know, How valuable are you? You're not just some ragdoll that was cast aside and forgotten about in prison or whatever struggle you're facing today, whether it's physical struggles, emotional struggles, financial struggles. David said, I've been young and I've been old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. God, God loves us. We're bought with a price. And the, the, the value of an item is determined by the price someone pays for it, right? Uh, my uh, mom uh, was an antique dealer for many, many years, and for a period of time she had a retail storefront where she would get shipments from different places overseas and also do her own antique hunting, and she would resell them. And So when we lived in Houston, uh, one time I was in the antique shop, and, and I would walk around, and, you know, there's all these things. I didn't have a clue what half of them were, and I'd be looking at it, and there'd be a price tag, you know, $375. I'd say, what, what's this? Oh, it's a thingamajig, whatever the name for it was. She knew. And I'd say, wow, $375. Someone would actually pay that for this? Oh, yeah, yeah, they'd, they'd pay for it. And, and I went on and on and would look at these things, and, and, and finally I occurred to her, now, you do understand that until somebody actually pays $375 for that, we don't really know what it's worth, right? It's what someone's worth paying. And thrift shops and antique shops and all these flea markets are loaded with items that, that somebody thinks has a value, but until somebody ponies up and puts forth the money, you don't know how much those things are worth. It's probably going to be still in her house somewhere. I mean, this was 25 years ago when we lived... And I'm going to have to divvy it up when she goes home to be with the Lord if the Lord tarries is coming. And you know how much it'll be worth that at that point? As much as it takes time as it takes me to walk from the front door to the dumpster. Sorry, mother. But, uh, because it, it, something is valued by what you pay for. And we're valuable because God paid the ultimate price, the death of His Son, and Jesus shed His own blood. So power of the blood is a powerful motivator. And then we see number four, the promise of God. The promise of God in verses 22 and 23. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure, rider, with pure water. So here the author is finishing this long sentence. Another reason a lot of people think it was Paul, uh, but we can't say for sure but that started way back in verse 19. In other words, in light of this and this and this, and this, now what's the point? Draw near in full assurance of faith. Why? He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because here it is, he who promised is faithful. 
Now, we've been talking a lot about the kingdom promise of God that started all the way back in Genesis 3.15 and will find its full culmination at the end of the book of Revelation when Christ comes back and makes all things new. And we know that in Peter, Peter talks about how people are going to mock the promise of His coming, 2 Peter 3. And a lot of people today don't teach about the promised kingdom of God. They don't teach about the end times. That's what you've heard me call the 84% club because 16% of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy. And when you don't teach that or have no interest in that or no appetite for that, you're just an 84%er. And if you're comfortable with 84% of the Bible, good for you. I want 100% of the Bible. Not just because I'd want to preach and teach and study the whole counsel of God, but because that last 16% is so rich, it's so vital, it's so important, and it motivates us to be bold when we study the promise of God. And the writer frequently has referred to this coming kingdom. In fact, back, way back in chapter 2, if you recall, he made it clear that God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but in subjection to the Son. So the whole focus of the letter is on the world to come. Hang tough. Hang tight. I know that Nero is persecuting you. I know it's tough. I know some of you are losing family members. But hang on, because the world to come is a far, far better thing. And God will reward you richly if you hang on to the faith. So the promise of God motivates us. And in an age when nothing can be counted on, we need something to count on, don't we? Well, count on the promise of God. Count on the promise of God. And then finally, and uh, I noticed that we put out on our sign uh, this uh, week this reference. We see in verses 24 and 25 the fifth reason we can be bold, and that is the partnership of the church. The partnership of the church. See, we cannot do this alone. And the writer knew that. I remember hearing Adrian Rogers uh, tell the, the story. Uh, Adrian Rogers is a great preacher, Southern Baptist preacher down in Memphis at Bellevue Baptist. He's with the Lord now, but boy, he was an incredible biblical communicator. And he told the story one time about a man who was going around bragging to everybody that he had cut off the tail of a lion with only his pocket knife. And he's just telling everybody and bragging about it. Finally, one fellow asked him, well, why didn't you cut off the, t the lion's head? And the man goes, well, someone had already done that. So, um, so you know, we're in this together. It takes, it takes a group, right? And the quickest way to drift away from the Lord and become ill-equipped for the trials of life is to stop coming to church. Notice what he says. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day there, I believe, is the return of Christ, though many people think contextually he was talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that's fine, I understand that view. But I think in light of everything he's been saying, he's pointing much further down the road than that. And that's the reason the New King James capitalizes it there, referring to the return of Christ. 
But notice twice in this, these two verses he uses the phrase one another. You've, I'm sure, heard a lot of talk about and noticed it yourself, the one another passages in the New Testament. By my count, there are 43 times that the New Testament epistles use the phrase one another to talk about how in the church we need each other. And two of them are right here in this passage. So we're told to love one another, admonish one another, care for one another, serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, sing to one another, submit to one another, comfort one another, confess to one another, have compassion for one another, be hospitable to one another, minister to one another. And then here we see exhort one another and consider there the ideas there is stir up, you know, motivate or push one another towards good works. See, it's much easier to do all of these things when you can look each other in the eyes. That's why we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. These Jewish Christians were literally considering not meeting together on Sunday mornings with the local church in the upper room house churches. Because to do so would be clearly identifying them as followers of the way, Christianity. And in fear of Roman persecution... They said, we'll hide out. We'll be clandestine, right? You know, we'll stay home and live stream it or whatever they did in their day. But Paul says, or the writer here says, you don't, you don't, we don't want you to retreat to your comfort zone. We want you to be bold. And you don't have to do it alone, right? The partnership of the church, you know, I don't know where we're headed in this world. It's just a crazy, crazy world. But there may come a day when we have to stand firm against government tyranny. And, you know, I need you to promise me that if I get arrested for preaching the Word of God at Plum Creek Chapel, somebody will bail me out. So we're going to put a sign-up sheet at the back. And uh, let's make sure... Because I want to, Jesus said count the cost, so I'm just counting the cost to make sure I'm not going to be like Admiral Stockdale and be spend seven and a half years. Um, but we, we need the church. And the partnership of the church is a great reason for boldness. So there they are, the five reasons. The permanence of Christ, which was very meaningful to the original audience and likewise to us. The presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the blood, the promise of God, and the partnership of of the church. So I'll leave you with this takeaway. The children of Israel, going back before the church, on the banks of the Jordan were facing a daunting task. It was a time of uncertainty and anxiety. They had a great fear of the unknown. And remember what Joshua said to them, what the Lord said through Joshua, as he tried to get them to be bold. Joshua 1.9. Have not I commanded you, be strong, and of good courage. Don't be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's a great verse to memorize, and I want to leave you with that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, just this reminder of the call to boldness and the reasons for boldness. And uh, Lord, I thank you that we have the privilege of being a part of a local body that made up of mature believers, brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, can work together with one another uh, to do the right thing and, and to encourage and lift up one another. 
Lord, we pray for protection. We pray that if there's one here today that is struggling and just needs just boldness and, and courage and a shot of courage, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just just really make himself known to them and just remind them of his presence and just lift up the spirits of that person. And Lord, I pray if there's one here that doesn't know you as their personal Savior, that through simple faith in Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our sins, they would recognize that he's the only one that would save them and place their faith in him. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.